Last time on the I Am Story podcast. When Mr. Cole and Mr. Walker lost their life in that loader, that's when he said, we got a strike. Let's do it. We were sick and tired of being sick and tired. We didn't really know. We just, you know, felt that we was going to be able to come out of this thing with a union. Now, these were people who had spent the better part of their adult life working for a city, taking orders from a racist supervisor. This is not New York, and nothing will be gained by ignoring our laws. The, the mayor of Memphis, Henry Loeb, thought he was John Wayne. <laughs> I mean, it's, there are three or four of us sitting in his office trying to explain to him what's going on. And he's got his shotgun beneath his table. Everybody will fall in line and we will get on the west side of the street and march down and hold me back into Mason Hall. When suddenly from the side street came police cars, each of them filled with four white policemen. At this point, the police, it, looked, it was already an army of policemen, but it kept getting larger and larger. The moment they put their hands in that squad car, <laughs> these police officers poured out of the cars with mace cans. February 23rd, 1968 was a fiery day in Memphis. The city's sanitation workers had gone on strike after two of their co-workers were killed inside their garbage truck. And now, 11 days later, more than a 1,000 strikers and their supporters were marching down Main Street. And the strike was about to take a dramatic turn. Police used riot control gas and nightsticks this afternoon to break up a disturbance among a group of striking garbage men. They came after us, and for the first time in my life, I was gassed or maced. Now up on the curb, too, not out in the street, up on the curb, and that's when I got mad. To see policemen just really brutally beating people with nightsticks for no reason, no reason at all. The, the people were in a state of panic. I mean, they had never been exposed to mace before. I mean, it was just a real mess. I'm Lee Saunders, president of AFSCME, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. It was AFSCME leaders out in front of the march that day, and emotions were high. The previous day, union leaders thought they'd reached an agreement with the City Public Works Committee to end the strike. The plan would have meant recognizing the Sanitation Workers Union and improving their abysmal working conditions. But that day, the City Council had thrown the plan out, wouldn't even discuss it. Everyone was furious, especially the head of our union at the time, Jerry Worth. They told me there'd be an honest council meeting today. And you and I would have a chance to talk to this council. I regret I believed them. They lied to me and they lied to you. So now, they were marching through town. They knew the mayor wanted to sabotage their efforts, but their march was completely peaceful. 
That is until police cars started pushing up against the marchers. Suddenly, Memphis police started attacking the marchers with mace. And not just the strikers. They attacked dozens of black church leaders who had simply come to lend their support. From the beginning, Reverend James Lawson was a leader in the march. So we were all maced up and down, uh, but my glasses saved me. My glasses and my blinking my eyes when it, when they, they were macing me kept me from being demobilized. <laughs> and, and such brutality. It was as though they had been standing back waiting for an opportunity. It's the first time that the chemical mace is used anywhere in America for crowd control, and Reverend G.E. Patterson is in the thick of it. You could see it. You could see it in the eyes of the policemen. They were uh, like kids with a new toy. One of the union representatives, P.J. Champa, he was on the ground, and they were spraying him with mace while he was on the ground. So we all scattered on both sides of the sidewalks as we uh, recovered and got up and began to join each other again. We continued our walk on the sidewalks down Main Street. Most of the marchers managed to make their way to Mason Temple, a huge African-American church a couple miles away from City Hall. There, the union leaders sit down with church ministers who've been caught in the crossfire. Many of the ministers, like Reverend Patterson, are prominent members of the religious community. But they're not civil rights activists. And for many of them, this is their first march. The people who had this mace in their hair and on their clothes you know, after we got into this room, we could hardly have the meeting for tears running from the fumes of the mace. The first gassing, macing of that first march down the street, it uh, created great anger in among us and within the black community. I saw this for what it was. This was done to me for one reason, and that's because I was black. Reverend Ralph Jackson is a powerful leader in the AME Church, the African Methodist Episcopal. He's covered in mace, and he's outraged. I have always prided myself, coming from Birmingham, living in the midst of racism and all, the only encounter I had ever had with a policeman was a ticket. And I have said all of this discipline of 30 years was lost in that moment. The police would not have maced ministers of the white community. But none of this is new to Reverend James Lawson. He's a longtime civil rights activist, and for several years now, he's been following the sanitation workers' efforts to unionize. As a pastor in Memphis, I had city employees in my congregation. I had sanitation workers in my congregation. Uh, so... A pastor is supposed to meddle in anything that's hurting his people. <laughs> anything that makes his people fragile and vulnerable and hurtful. We are supposed to say no, and we're supposed to try to help them fight it. 
But Bill Lucy, a tall young union organizer from D.C., realizes looking around the room that most of the ministers, including Ralph Jackson, have never had anything to do with workers or unions. We didn't know what to expect from them, and they didn't know what to expect from us. What we knew was that uh, the, the men needed their help. You see, until that time, we were not that particularly interested in helping the labor union. Then when this happened and we met, this is when we began to get the story behind the union. So it was at that meeting we decided that we would not take this line down. We were called the black community. It uh, produced a community strategy committee that will organize the black community to support the strike in every way necessary. There was a lady by the name of Alma Morris uh, who brought us a list of about 250 ministers' names from across the black community and a few from the white community. And we stayed up that night and sent a telegram to each one of them asking them if they would come to a meeting the following day to talk about what could be done. And they showed up and we began to think about a plan. The city's mayor, Henry Loeb, makes no apologies for the police attack. The events of today demonstrate that Memphis will not tolerate civil disorder and with the continuing help and support of all the people of this city, order will be maintained. By the next day, the ministers and union leaders have created a whole new organization. Community on the move for equality. There were really two key roles early on. One was Ralph Jackson, and the other was Jim Lawson. Go ahead. My colleagues and I are representing well over 100 ministers who have been meeting today in Memphis, discussing the sanitation workers' strike, the way in which these men have been treated thus far has galvanized people of goodwill to their support. All their just and fair demands must be met, and we are moving from this moment in order to see to it that their effort will not fail in Memphis. When this all happened in the 60s, everything was changing because of the Black Freedom Movement, which was busting out everywhere. And it was busting out in Memphis, too. And younger people were saying, we're not putting up with this anymore. And so for black people in the 60s, the reality was, for the great mass of people, they were impoverished. And yet, there was this civil rights movement hitting high speed. Michael Honey is a historian and wrote an award-winning book on the Memphis strike. He also spent six years in the 1970s as a civil rights organizer. It sort of deepened my bones, and I lived in Memphis for those six years. So I knew a lot of the people that are in this story. So uh, the ministers and the civil rights people became crucial because they had more room to maneuver 
than the unions. You know, we're in a country with incredible anti-union laws still. And Loeb said, you, you can't even strike according to our state law. You know, the federal law didn't allow it either. The sanitation workers were lucky in one way. They had a brilliant strategist on their side, Jim Lawson. We will have nightly mass meetings beginning Monday night at Claiborne Temple AME Church. And we are now calling upon the people of this city to stay away from downtown businesses and the businesses of councilmen and the businesses with the name Loeb on them. One of God's angels. <laughs> Uh, Lawson was an individual who had studied Gandhi, young fellow, had, had taught nonviolence. I mean, was just a marvelous individual. Yes, I followed Gandhi. I went. Uh, I kick myself now that I didn't go to Indiana High School to meet Gandhi. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I went fifty-three to fifty-six. I worked in India in Nagpur, and I went to at least two of his ashrams. I met any number of, uh, of the people who were active in the independence movement, including Jawaharlal Nehru on three or four occasions. Reverend Lawson was raised in Ohio by parents who were civil rights activists. An outstanding student, an ardent pacifist, Jim went to jail in his 20s for refusing military service. After studying Gandhi's nonviolent strategies, he came back to the States and worked with Martin Luther King fighting segregation. James Lawson would come to be known as the architect of the nonviolent movement. He had uh, played a major role in preparing young people, you know, how to participate in nonviolent activity. By 68, I have had 20 years of studying and practicing nonviolence. We made the strike our business. We made the strike a movement and a part of the civil rights movement. Lawson's strategy kicks the strike into high gear. Picket line marches, boycotts, mass meetings. A lot of the activity is based out of Claiborne Temple, a beautiful old downtown church just off Beale Street. Claiborne Temple became sort of the, um, the meeting place uh, for the activists and people who wanted to participate to help the strikers. It was a monster church, a big church. Uh, I'm not sure how to, how to describe it, but old, it had a, an incredible balcony. And uh, the church was, was like a 100% black church. 100%. Claiborne is part of the larger AME Church, African Methodist Episcopal, the oldest independent black church in America, which is deeply tied to the civil rights movement. But the pastor at Claiborne Temple at this time is surprisingly a white fellow, a Canadian named Malcolm Blackburn. He had built such a reputation of helping you know, the community that it, it was not odd, but it was, it, it was just weird. <laughs> but Malcolm, 
Hill made the church available. Uh, we were there every day, every single day. Malcolm Blackburn will later remember this time as a crazy whirl of activity. The, the main march at 2 o'clock and then it became 3 o'clock and the young people at 4.30 was our standard pattern, followed by a mass meeting, followed by a strategy meeting, you know, till 1 or 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and then starting over again the next day and trying to get handbills printed. And this, you know, became a kind of blur. We would come down Main Street, make a left on London, come down London, back down to Dana Thomas, and come back up Dana Thomas to go back to Mason Street. The sanitation workers gather at Claiborne Temple every day. Cleo Smith is one of them. Together, they march in a long line snaking through the city, carrying signs. Some had, we shall overcome, written on them, and uh, some had on that, we fired up, and so on. And people was hanging all out of their, you know, rooms. And then some people even joined in, and people would come out, you know, get in the march. They didn't, you know, march all the way. But I guess they just wanted to be a part of it. We had to do something every single day. Street marches today, and we'd do something else tomorrow, so it would never be the same thing every day. Police are shadowing the organizers, especially the union leaders, everywhere they go. T.L. Jones is the sanitation worker's local leader, and he's a prime target. His 14-year-old son, Jesse Jones, goes everywhere with him. Henry Lowe was totally against this union, and he had policemen watching if we had a meeting, policemen were sitting across the street. And when you come out to go home or whatever, they would trail my father's car. He had a 1957 Chevy. So they created diversion. Somebody else drove the 57 Chevy, or we went with somebody else. In Memphis, the police officers mostly came from the plantation districts, almost entirely white. And so you know, it was common procedure to beat people up. T.L. Jones and his son Jesse dodged the police by sleeping in different homes every night. There were times when we spent the night at Frank Warren's house, Clint Burroughs' house, J.L. McClain's house, Robert Beasley's house, or Mr. White's house, you know, or Mr. Lemon. I thank God. I remember and for the families of the sanitation workers, these are very lean days. Jimmy Leach is the wife of Baxter Leach. Well, uh, the first thought was how we were going to make it, you know, him walking off the job. So He was one of the first ones to sign up for the union. I can remember how he began to go around and trying to get other men to, you know, join the union. So even though he didn't have an education, but he worked, yes. And uh, we had friends that would help us sometime. So we made it. Everybody, now work with us. Work with us. We need some people who can serve as pickets downtown. On the bottom of this page, what day of the week and what hours you can work. 
So, you know, the families were in bad shape. And the only way they managed this was they would have these mass meetings at different churches every day and pass a garbage can and people would throw money in there. And so that's where their strike fund came from. And it's time for these barber folk and beauty shop folk and these teachers and all the rest of y'all to get up from there and come on and march. And then this group of women started coming up with food and clothing and, you know, holding drives to support the workers' families. The way we would march, we would leave like 9 in the morning, around 2.30, maybe 3, coming back, yeah. We'd get back just in time enough to uh, go to Mason Temple to get the little ration of food and take it home. And my wife, she was 100% with me. They would give us like flour, meal, lard at the time, <laughs> ham in the can. It wasn't, you know, no like chicken and stuff like that. It, it helped because we didn't have anything. But for the wives at home, like Florence Yule, it's a frightening time. Having your man out on the street every day, holding a sign in the air, fighting the city. Well, I was afraid him leaving home. But me with the kids, it wasn't a good feeling because I didn't know whether he was going to get hurt or whether he was going to come back home. But what he wanted better for us, and that was the only way out. So we talked about it, and you do what you have to do. I stay home, make sure the kids are all right. But I'll be able the Lord took him and brought him when I would see him coming home. I was back relieved and joy that he was able to go make a few dollars to come back home to keep us going. Mrs. Yule's husband is the striker, Osea Yule. Their son, Jonathan, would later come to see his father's time on the picket line as truly brave. I mean, to take a stand and say, hey, I'm going to stop working. I don't know how long the strike's going to last. This was his source of income. But he thought it was so important to stand with this effort that he did. He didn't think about how he's going to feed his family. We run out of food. What's going to happen? We don't have money to pay the utility bill. He didn't think about anything. He said, this is the right thing to do, and I want to be a part of it. And he did. Amazing courage, amazing commitment, and amazing faith. That's what it was. Loeb said, Loeb said that he wanted garbage to pile up as high as the apartment, let's help him pile it up. The garbage is piling up in the city and the strike is keeping the police running in circles. But the mayor, Henry Loeb, maintains a hard line. He will not negotiate. I repeat, as I've said many times before, that when the men return to work, I will discuss their grievances with their representatives. But until then, the public interest must come first. Henry Loeb had some good sides, but he was just hard-line anti-union. He said, my father would roll over in his grave if he knew that I accepted a union. He came from a family uh, that had the Loeb laundry where they fired people if they tried to unionize. Uh, So he had that anti-union idea He was extremely anti-communist, which was a big thing in Memphis at the time. 
anybody who organizes the union is probably a communist. And it was a racist, you know. So um, black people don't have any rights that where they can be represented by a union. They're not smart enough. They're not educated enough. So they should just do what we tell them to do. So with the mayor stonewalling them, strike supporters, including Ralph Jackson, try to pressure the city council to step in. Much time was wasted, but every week we would go into the council in an effort to try to get the council to dissolve this matter, which they refused to do. Our plea to them went on deaf ears. Our main interest was that uh, blacks must not beat the mayor. The mayor must be upheld and all this kind of Tommy Rock. So for the next council meeting, they decide to try something different, a sit-in. And then it became a jail in. And if you wanted to get arrested, stay at City Hall. And these are people who just agreed that they would get arrested. Like anybody who doesn't have the courage to stand up for what he knows to be right. Mr. Chairman, if I insult you by telling the truth, I move we adjourn. If I insult you by speaking and saying that these men have fought for this country, these men have died for this country, and all they're asking for is a little bit of self-respect. A young black minister, Reverend Ezekiel Bell, presses the city council to help the sanitation workers. The police give the crowd 45 minutes to clear the council chambers. Time runs out and the activists sing as they file out to be arrested. Most are in jail for just a few hours, but it keeps the strike in the spotlight. We had hundreds of people arrested from City Hall. I mean, it, it, it was just so many different things we tried to find to do that would generate more support. By now, lots of different kinds of people are supporting the sanitation workers. Civil rights groups, business people, students, unions, and everybody's got a different idea of what they're fighting for. We, we were trying to find some glue to hold this stuff together to guarantee that the folks would stay together. The uglier this thing got, so they asked Malcolm and myself if we would give some thought to, you know, a slogan or a, a something that would cause people to think strongly about what they were doing and why they were doing it. They're looking for something that's about more than just working conditions. Now, everyone is talking about equality and dignity. So Malcolm and I put these things together. We wanted something as short as we could get it, but understandable. And came up with the slogan, I am a man. I 
I am a man. I am a man. I'm a man. And so we printed about three, four hundred the first night at the print shop in the church and put them out on the street the next day and the, the place just went crazy. The sign hit the city like a bolt of lightning. It's an idea that's been floating around throughout the strike, like when Reverend Lawson talks to the sanitation workers. Every time I spoke to them, I talked to them about their personhood, about their manhood. And I, I use phrases like, you are a man, you are a woman. And, the, and Mayor Loeb doesn't respect you and <laughs> doesn't see you as he sees himself essentially as the human being. And the sanitation workers have their own connection to it. Cleo Smith and Osea Yule tell the story of what happened to one of their union leaders, Joe Warren. Was that Mr. Joe Warren uh, went into Mr. Mayor Lowe's office one day, and Mr. Lowe said to Mr. Joe Warren, said, boy, who told you to come in my office? And the mayor called him a boy, and uh, he took... He, he told the mayor that he wasn't no boy, he was a man. The reaction of the men, and I mean, they were ecstatic. Those four words said to what they'd been wrestling with the better part of their adult life. Doing the worst, dirtiest jobs for the smallest pay, and they're not treated as men. I feel proud. I know, you know, I was doing the right thing. Like I said, I am a man, you know. I'm not no wimp, I'm not jellyback. I'm a man. And I'm gonna stand up for the things that a man is supposed to stand up for. And the black community of Memphis all of a sudden identified with the workers. I mean, everybody there had been through the same thing that these sanitation workers were going through. Saw this as a part of their struggle and moved to the white community of Memphis and they were absolutely berserk. You know, like how dare you you put such a confrontational statement into a worker's strike. Pictures of the Memphis sanitation workers holding up the I Am A Man signs would eventually reverberate across the country. Those four words would strike a deep chord in the hearts of marginalized Americans for years to come. But in this moment in Memphis, there's practically a news blackout. The local newspapers are heavily biased against the unions, and they're barely covering the strike. So we brought in, we began to bring in outside forces for the main purpose of getting news coverage because we couldn't get it. And we knew that when the, uh, when the president of the NAACP came, this would bring us news coverage. Or when, when Byron Rustage came, this would bring news coverage. Roy Wilkins, the NAACP president, does come to Memphis, and so does another well-known civil rights leader, Bayard Rustin. If I were the mayor of this city, 
If I were the mayor of this city, I would be ashamed. Let me tell you, my friends, you've got to win. You got to win. You got to win. For those of us in New York, in San Francisco, in Florida, as But there's one man the organizers know could take this strike to a whole new level Martin Luther King Jr. Reverend Lawson is an old friend and ally of Dr. King, and Lawson's been keeping him informed for weeks now. He had, uh, knew the strike was going on. He was glad to be included. He recognized the strike as a part of our work together across the years. I told him that he didn't need to worry about when he could come to Memphis. I said, you select the date and we will do it that day. He was traveling everywhere, you know, for the Poor People's Campaign. He was on the road all the time. And so King's um, group of advisors and workers around him said, you can't go there, you know, don't do that. And he says, how can I not go to Memphis? This is a campaign for the working poor and the poor people, and they're asking me to come, so how can I not go? He was on his way from California to Washington, D.C., and he said, well, I'll just stop and, um, you know, I'll make a speech in Memphis, and, and that'll be the end of it. He had helped any number of people organize unions, mobilize unions. I mean, he really understood the need for these workers to have representation. Dr. King arrives on March 18th. He's set to speak at Mason Temple, an enormous African-American church in Memphis. This will be the largest mass meeting in 20 years of the civil rights movement. Memphis was the only place where we had black control of an auditorium that would seat 8,000 people. And with standing room would hold 12,000 people. And with a big parking lot, you could have 25 or 30,000 people. Uh, after he got off the plane and we were walking together down the concourse, I said to him in a solemn face, Martin, I told you we would have 5,000 people at the mass meeting, but we're not. His face dropped. <laughs> and after some pauses, we then said, you're going to be in a mass meeting of 25,000 people. And his radiant smile went all across his face because we could never do that in the South. Dear friend, my dear friend, James Lawson, as I came in tonight, I turned around and said to Ralph Abernathy, they really have a great movement here in Memphis. I was sitting up on the second balcony in Mason Temple, the first seat against the wall, and I was sitting there listening to every word that he made mention of that night. 
You are demanding that this city will respect the dignity of labor. So often we overlook the worth and the significance of those who are not in professional jobs, of those who are not in the so-called big jobs. But let me say to you tonight that whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth. Uh, the speech he gave that night was just powerful. One day our society will come to respect the sanitation worker if it is to survive for in the final analysis is as significant as the physician for if he doesn't do his job, disease is a rapper. The, the workers... I mean, they were just ecstatic. By then, they had come really come to realize that they really did something meaningful for the city. All labor has dignity. But you are doing another thing. You are reminding not only Memphis, but you are reminding the nation that it is a crime for people to live in this rich nation and receive starvation wages. He elevated the consciousness of the people. This is a bigger issue than getting more than a minimum wage. It's about the next stage of the black freedom movement, and you are a part of that. Now our struggle is for genuine equality, which means economic equality. For we know now, what does it profit a man to be able to eat at an integrated lunch counter if he doesn't earn enough money to buy a hamburger and a cup of coffee? It was everything that King was aiming for. It changed the emphasis in the poor people's campaign from simply the unemployed poor to the working poor. And it was part of his evolution from the first part of his movement for uh, civil rights and voting rights to what he called phase two, economic justice. Let it be known everywhere that along with wages, and all of the other securities that you are struggling for, you're also struggling for the right to organize and be recognized. I want you to stick it out so that you will be able to make Mayor Loeb and others say yes, even when they want to say no.
Dr. King's speech in Memphis is an incredible shot of adrenaline for the sanitation workers and their supporters. And it finally brings a strike into the national spotlight. Before the night is out, Dr. King agrees to come back to Memphis to lead a march, the biggest march so far, that will show the strength of the community's support for the strikers. They hope this will finally force the mayor and city council to agree to improve the working conditions for the sanitation workers and recognize their union. But the road ahead is about to take some very dramatic turns with hidden obstacles and shadowy enemies. Because the spiritual forces of wickedness in the United States sabotage the march. I think there were people who wanted Dr. King to be blamed for a new kind of thing that he could not control. We are not relenting in our effort to keep the movement in Memphis going forward. We will not be turned around. That's next time on the I Am Story Podcast. I'm Lee Saunders.